Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. Coming up this week, the US restarts research on gun violence. And the sea sponges that control currents. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, despite well-documented problems with gun violence in the US, there's been a shortage of research into this topic. That is beginning to change, though. Reporter Nick Petrichow is here with more. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2019, 16.1% of all injury-related deaths in the US were associated with firearms. That's more than 100 people a day, more than die from traffic accidents. The US gun homicide rate is 25 times that of other high-income countries. This is Ashley Van Ness, the Director of Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures an organization that funds gun violence research. In 2019, about half of all gun homicides took place in about 127 cities, which represent about a quarter of the U.S. population. And within these cities, gun homicides are most prevalent in racially segregated neighborhoods with high rates of poverty. Despite the tens of thousands of people that die each year, there's relatively little known about gun violence in the U.S., Well, for decades, basic questions about how to prevent gun violence have just gone under research. So, for example, we can't necessarily answer questions of how do people obtain guns? We don't know where the guns used to commit shootings actually come from. This knowledge gap has largely been attributed to a lack of federal funding. Due to a bit of legislation known as the Dickey Amendment, funding from the federal government on gun violence research was practically frozen for 20 years. But in 2018, this amendment was clarified, and now researchers are able to get a piece of $25 million of federal money for gun violence research, for the first time in almost a generation. I think it could save lives. The impact for this kind of research can be 
nearly immediate. This is Lisa Wexler, who answered the National Institutes of Health call for projects on the topic of gun violence. Lisa works with Indigenous people of Alaska, a population for whom guns are very important, and she is well aware of how controversial any discussion of gun use can be. It intersects with things like self-determination, with things like personal rights and freedoms. All of those things get mixed up when we start talking about guns in this country. And that is amplified in Indigenous communities who literally have been dealing with the government in ways that have restricted their access to food, so hunting restrictions that have restricted their access to land, traditional lands that they've been moved off of. In Alaska, that's a little bit different, but still there's a lot of narratives that link these things and think about government as restricting freedoms, both tribal freedoms as well as individual freedoms. But access to guns can also have another side. Having a gun in your home increases your risk of suicide by three. Suicide is the leading cause of death for Alaskan Native men under the age of 24. And suicides are often committed using firearms. And so, in her work, Lisa is using her newfound funding to search for a balance working with communities to find out if promoting safety measures, like locking guns away in cabinets or making sure they are not left loaded, could protect their young people from suicide, without restricting access to firearms per se. If you can make it 10 minutes harder to get a lethal means, in this case a loaded gun, you can save lives because a lot of suicides are impulsive, particularly youth suicides. And so if we can just slow that process down, give more opportunities for alternative ways forward, we can actually stop suicide from happening. Maeve Wallace is another researcher that answered the National Institutes of Health call for projects. In her research, she works with pregnant people. So it might come as a surprise to many people, but homicide is actually a leading cause of death among pregnant and postpartum women. And most of those homicides are by gun. So it's a leading cause of maternal mortality and therefore a relatively big issue in this field. Little is known about how to protect these people from gun violence. And so when new funding became available, Maeve saw an opportunity. So I proposed to evaluate state-level policies that pertain to restricting access to firearms by persons involved with domestic violence. So not only do we know that most homicides of pregnant and postpartum women are by firearm, but they're also most predominantly committed by an intimate partner. So someone has been involved with domestic violence against their partner. So state laws that I'm looking at as possible ways that states can implement laws to prevent maternal mortality due to homicide are firearm restrictions or prohibited possession of firearms among people who have been convicted of domestic violence or among people who are under domestic violence restraining orders. By looking at the rates of maternal and postpartum mortality across states with different rules on restricting firearms, Maeve hopes to get an idea of the sorts of legislation and policy that would be most effective in protecting people. Preliminarily, what we've found supports our hypothesis. States that are enacting these laws are seeing a reduction in homicide in subsequent years. Both Maeve and Lisa are appreciative of new federal funding now available, as they hope their research could save lives. But it's only the start. There's still many basic questions that we don't have answers to. Moreover, the infrastructure for collecting data on gun violence is pretty underdeveloped. 
Here's Ashley again, who you heard from earlier. There's a huge gap there as well. And without government support, researchers really can't do much work without that government data. Unlike the database for motor vehicle fatalities or surveillance systems for HIV, systems for tracking firearm casualties are just incomplete. And so one example that you know, we think is an urgent question is something around gun ownership. So in 2001, 2002, and 2004, our Centers for Disease Control measured the prevalence of gun ownership through a survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. And the CDC removed questions on gun ownership following the 2004 survey. Back in 2019, $25 million of new funding was a welcome change for researchers concerned about gun violence in the US. But many say it's not enough. President Biden has suggested doubling that $25 million each year, but after a 20-year gap, there's a lot of ground to cover. We really thought $25 million each year falls short of federal funding in terms of other fields of public health. So what I mean by this is we see that motor vehicles and firearms kill a similar number of people on an annual basis, but unlike firearm deaths, the government invests $90 million each year in studying vehicle fatalities. Regardless of how much funding ends up being released, research in gun violence has a lot of catching up to do. And plenty of researchers are ready to take up the challenge. Here's Lisa again. We've understudied firearm violence, and we've done it in such a way that has sort of not allowed us to see possibilities where there might be. So I think For me, it opens up some really possibly impactful ways to be thinking about reducing risk that can have really soon consequences instead of the really long-term work that also needs to be done. That's really exciting to me. That was Lisa Wexler from the University of Michigan in the US. You also heard from Ashley Van Ness from Arnold Ventures and Maeve Wallace from the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, both also in the US. You can find out more about how gun violence research is changing in a Nature Feature article published this week. And we also covered this topic last year in our science and politics series, Stick to the Science, which is well worth a listen. We'll put a link to both of them in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about how the unusual structure of a sea sponge helps it to guide deep sea currents. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. Strategic laziness and a diet of yak dung have been found to help a round-eared relative of rabbits to survive harsh winters at high altitude. The plateau pika live at elevations between 3,100 and 5,000 metres on the Qinghai-Tibet plateau, where the air is thin and winter temperatures often drop below minus 30 degrees Celsius. To understand how these mammals survive, researchers filmed pikas and implanted them with temperature sensors. They also injected the animals with water bearing a distinctive isotope to assess their metabolic rate. The team found that on average, plateau pikas can lower their daily energy expenditure by almost 30% in winter. They also rely on an unexpected but nutritious and easy-to-digest food that they can access without expending too much precious energy. Domestic yak feces, which local people also use as fuel. Lower your energy expenditure and relax while you read that research in full in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. 
More than a quarter of food produced for human consumption in China gets lost along the supply chain or lands on garbage heaps. A team of researchers reviewed field surveys and published literature to estimate that around 350 million tons of China's annual farm product is discarded by retailers, restaurants or consumers or is ruined and disposed of before reaching retail. The scientists say that food waste on such a large scale threatens environmental and sustainability goals. To reduce waste, the authors suggest, among other steps, that rural Chinese households use more efficient storage systems and that urban restaurants reduce portions and encourage patrons to take their leftovers home. Chew on that research in Nature Food. Next up, reporter Ali Jennings has been diving down to the deep ocean to uncover the skeletal secrets of a sea sponge. Hundreds of metres below the surface of the ocean, on the abyssal seabed, a delicate lace cylinder sits in the darkness. Euplectella aspergillum, also known as Venus flower basket, is a deep sea sponge supported by a remarkable skeleton. Criss-crossed filaments of silica, glass that form a lattice, around which grow the sponge's cells. The result is a hollow cylinder peppered with holes through which the ocean currents flow. The flexibility and resilience of this sponge's skeleton have long been studied. Its elegant structure allows it to survive the buffeting of the deep-sea currents that might otherwise tear it loose from the ocean floor. But what has remained unknown is how the sponge's structure affects the water that flows around it. That's precisely the point of the paper. This is Sauru Succi, a researcher from the Italian Institute of Technology. We are experts in the way fluid moves. And so it was pretty natural for us to ask, OK, but how does hydrodynamics affect the living condition of the sponge? But studying the intricacies of water flow on a sponge sat a kilometre under the sea is not simple. So Saro and his team decided instead to simulate the sponge and the water surrounding it on a computer. In fact, on one of the most powerful supercomputers in the world. In order to see the hydrodynamic patterns, we have to solve of the order of 50 billion equations because we have just to describe the geometry as a sequence of little cubes and these cubes have to be small enough to capture the geometry. That's why you need so much computational power. Sauro's simulation worked out how the speed and direction of the water currents change as they flow over and through the Venus flower basket. It's an enormous amount of information. But let me tell you that before you look at the numbers, what you look at are really pictures, and you want to see the swirling patterns of the water as it moves around and inside the sponge. One of these swirling patterns of water is called a vortex. When a vortex collides with a structure, it exerts a force on it called drag that could damage or dislodge a sponge. Flow of water around the sponge's cylindrical shape causes such vortices to form, but the simulations revealed something surprising. The holes in the sponge were counteracting this problem. 
the strategy that the sponge implements is sophisticated because actually it generates vortices, but then they are launched far behind the structure itself so that the structure is preserved. But that was only part of the story. The skeleton of the Venus flower basket has a mysterious feature. Ridges of silica, glass, wind up the outside of the sponge like a spiral staircase or a helix. When Saro's team added these ridges to their model, the water inside the hollow cylinder of the sponge started to spiral up and down, flowing in a helix itself. Like a screw, and that's a very beautiful and sophisticated mechanism. Saro thinks that the helix of water created within the sponge could help trap and filter particles out of the water, like food or sperm for sexual reproduction. This could be an adaptation to help these animals survive in the harsh environments of the abyssal plain. I asked Saro how he felt when he first saw this unexpected result. Ali, I mean, do I have to tell you? You know, come on, we were elated. You're just grateful and you feel emotion that you have some beauty in front of you and you feel just happy. So I was really quite impressed with the scale of the simulation and, you know, the complexity of the geometry they were able to look at. This is Laura Miller, a mathematician and biologist from the University of Arizona, who was not involved in the research. Seeing someone combine these really state-of-the-art computing facilities, you know, to answer these questions was really quite exciting. Laura thinks Saro's findings will contribute to our understanding of how organisms filter out particles from water, like the sponge, but also from the air, as trees do with pollen. But now, Laura thinks that there are some important next steps for Saro to take. The authors speculate that the vertical patterns that are set up within the sponge can help with feeding and then also collecting sperm for reproduction. And they're basically making that assessment just looking at the flow patterns. So it would be interesting to know given what the sponges feed upon, and then also, you know, given the size and the properties of the sperm, are they preferentially filtering those out? And sort of how effective is this fluid design in terms of doing that? Laura also points out that one small detail has been missed from Sauro's model. Lining the inside of the Venus flower basket are cells with flagella, long whip-like structures that beat the water around them. These flagella could affect the movement of the water as well. But it turns out that Laura and Saro have been thinking along the same lines. We were able to go to the micrometer, okay? That's the scale we can resolve. I think the flagella should be in that scale. But if we want to resolve the flagella, then we have to be at least 10 times more powerful. And there is a machine in Italy being available probably in a year from now called Leonardo, like Da Vinci. And that's exactly our target. So stay tuned, because that might be actually a a direction to go. Both Laura and Saro think that the design of the Venus flower basket could inspire engineers, perhaps to improve ventilation in buildings, or reduce drag in ships, or maybe something even further. There might be some lesson that we can export to totally different scales, buildings or maybe skyscrapers, so design macroscopic structures on the lesson learned from the living silicon. That would be fantastic. A skyscraper inspired by a deep sea sponge that knows only the darkness of the abyssal sea floor.
Now that really would be fantastic. That was Ali Jennings, who spoke to Sauro Succi from the Italian Institute of Technology in Italy and Laura Miller from the University of Arizona in the US. For more on this story, check out Sauro's paper and a News and Views article written by Laura in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we talk about some of the latest stories that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. And Sharmini, what have you been reading this week? So there was a article in Nature this week about the use of monkeys for research, focused in the US, and how there's been a massive shortage of primates in general available for research. Right. And, and what's been causing this shortage then, Shami? I think I've got a, a fair idea, but I, am, am I right? So as a result of COVID, a lot of primary research centres had to do some emergency prioritising, working out who needs monkeys for vaccine and treatment testing without losing the ongoing research projects for other diseases that also need those animals. However, it seems that actually there's been a shortage from even before COVID, which is why the government were already pushing some extra money in. And then with COVID as well, there was some sort of emergency funding that went in. And yeah, overall, the government has been investing a large amount into sort of redoing all these facilities and expanding them to allow them to house more animals. So this investment then from the US government isn't necessarily just about breeding more animals then? Well, the the aim for research is to have a larger population. And, you know, there are a lot of monkeys that are needed. In 2019, about 68,000 non-human primates were used in research. So a lot of the money is into expanding the centres so that they can house more. In particular, they want to focus on sort of outdoor enclosures, which are supposed to be better for the animals and are also cheaper. But also some of them needed to um, make sure they have increased biosafety for monkeys specifically with SARS-CoV-2. But overall, it seems that certainly the researchers in this field say that a lot more investment is needed. Well, let's get a sense then, Shamini, of what sort of levels of investment we're talking then. Over the last couple of years, so this I think includes both the increase in funding from the National Institutes of Health before the pandemic and during the pandemic, has been 29 million US dollars. And the current administration is proposing even more for 2022 that needs approving by Congress another 27% increase, so another $30 million. But one of the people interviewed in this article said that in order to sort of fully reset, revamp the the current setups, all the primary research centres across the country would require a one-time sum of $50 million, which is even more ambitious than what Biden's administration is proposing. And do we have a sense of really how important non-human primate research has been I don't know, for, for, during the pandemic, for example, and, and more broadly. Yeah, well, the pandemic, I guess, has really sort of shed a light on it in a way that affects everyone because it's been absolutely critical in the early testing of vaccines and therapeutics. Obviously, there's a lot of people who disagree fundamentally with this point, and that has caused problems as well for researchers who do want to use macaques and things in their research. For example, a lot of airlines in the US won't carry primates for research due to the pressure from animal rights groups. And there's been a push from various sort of universities and companies trying to get the Department of Transportation to order airlines to carry the animals. Another issue that's come up during the pandemic is that another kind of macaque that's used for a lot of drug testing was being imported from China and China stopped shipping them 
because of the pandemic. So there's been a sort of shortage across the board there. And maybe finally on this one then, Sharmini, presumably the funding is being discussed and we can't expect all these new facilities to be built tomorrow. No, and you know, even if they were built tomorrow, it takes time to set up the colonies and, and breed the monkeys. But I think researchers are thinking about sort of future-proofing the system against potentially the next pandemic. And they want to be ready a few years down the line so that they're not faced with these shortages again. Well, my story this week is also looking to the future. And I read it on the BBC News website. And this is actually about the European Union, who have just announced a raft of climate change proposals to help get to the bloc's aim of being carbon neutral by 2050. Okay, yeah, that's some important future planning there. So what does the EU say it needs to do in order to get carbon neutral? Well, these proposals are called Fit for 55. And this is because they put the bloc on course to meet its 2030 goal of reducing emissions by 55% from 1990 levels, and that's en route to the 2050 carbon neutrality. And so, yeah, lots of discussions have been going on and say there's there's kind of a dozen or so proposals that have been put forward. So that's like potentially a really am- ambitious reduction. What's actually on the table? Well, yeah, ambitious, I think, Shamani, is the right word. The sense that I get is the aim is to try and make polluting more expensive and greener options more attractive. And some of the proposals that have been highlighted are tighter emission levels for cars, which is expected to maybe effectively end sales of new petrol and diesel cars by 2035, uh, tax on aviation, fuel, targets for expanding renewables, requirements that countries quickly renovate buildings that are not energy efficient. And this thing that's being called the carbon border tariff, that means that manufacturers from outside the EU will need to, say, pay a tariff on the carbon dioxide that they emit when selling some things to the EU, like steel and concrete and what have you. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. Has everyone agreed with this? Like, is it all systems go? Sadly, not, Shamani. Even getting to this point from what I've read, was difficult. So the European Commission, which is the administrative arm of the European Union, apparently there was a lot of disagreements in terms of getting these proposals ready ahead of time. And these were announced last week. And there's been a lot of pushback from industry. And there's been a lot of environmental groups saying these don't go far enough. And some countries are saying, hey, this is going to mean that our citizens' fuel bills are going to go up. So there's been some pushback there. And all 27 members of the EU and the EU Parliament need to agree on these. So it could be months or even, you know, maybe a couple of years before these sort of proposals are actually in place and ready to go, I guess. And so some people think this is going way too far. We can't possibly do this. And other people are saying this is nowhere near far enough. Absolutely. And people are saying that the success of this is going to come down to threading a fine line between what's considered realistic and fair for society and what doesn't necessarily disturb you know, the economy of, of these countries, of, of this block too much. So a really, really difficult one and, and tough targets. But of course, if countries are going to meet their, you know, the Paris Climate agreement to limit warming to below two degrees. Tough targets are really what's needed and really, really soon. Well, hopefully we'll be bringing everyone some more updates in future podcasts on how that's going. And listeners, another great place for science updates is the Nature Briefing. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up for those emails, plus links to the stories we've discussed today. That's all we've got time for this week. But as always, you can reach out to us on email. We're podcast at nature.com or on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.